0: Hello, everyone. You're listening to tonight's History Cast, where we have conversations about history. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Central Florida's History Department. This week, I had the pleasure and honor of meeting Dr. Frank Uketer, who is a professor of environmental humanities at the University of Birmingham in the United Kingdom, working on environmental issues, both past and present in a global context. We primarily spoke about his faculty lecture that he gave yesterday Here at UCF titled making sense of the juice Florida oranges and the problems of monoculture that um, naturally led the conversation to a variety of different topics uh, all relating though to his research which is monoculture and that also allowed us to talk about his upcoming book called the vortex and environmental history of the modern world which is coming out uh, by the University of Pittsburgh Press this coming February 2023. Um, another thing I want to note before getting into the pod this week is a little bit different in the sense of release date um, In observance of Veterans Day, which is this Friday. There will not be an episode of Night's History Cast published on that day. Instead, it's going to be published. Initially, was going to be published on Thursday, but because of Tropical Storm Nicole, um, for you Floridians, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But, yeah, there's a storm coming here to the state of Florida and things are are beginning to shut down and whatnot. So this episode is actually being published Wednesday morning. Um, so you hopefully if you don't lose power, which I probably will most likely lose power myself, but if you don't, hopefully this podcast could keep you entertained during um, the storm. And Obviously, I hope everyone is uh, safe and taken care of during this time. But yeah, so this conversation was highly interesting. I think out of all the podcasts I've done so far, this is one subject area where I am completely unaware of of the of the entire subject, to be quite honest. And his faculty talk yesterday really allowed me to get a sense of what his research uh, interests are and what his research has been focused on for over the past couple of years, but also allowed me to appreciate the subject more. And I kind of wanted to capture that essence of the talk and put it in a podcast. So, yeah, so that's how I tried to structure this podcast because I myself was was unaware. um, But being on the other side of things now, I'm, I'm, you know, somewhat aware, obviously not uh, to an extent of an expert, of course. But uh, I still appreciate getting and gaining that that little bit of knowledge in this um, underrated um, and overlooked subject field as we talk about in the pod. So enough of me talking and cue that music. Hello, everyone. This is Sebastian Garcia from Knight's History Cast. I have the pleasure of talking to Dr. Frank Eucater today for this week's podcast. Dr. Eucater is a professor of environmental humanities at the University of Birmingham in the United Kingdom, working on environmental issues both past and present in a global context. I hope uh, your transatlantic flight was smooth and comfortable, and I'm really happy to have you here. I appreciate it. Pleasure to be here. All right. So just like I told you recently off mic, I'm going to tell this on mic so our listeners could understand the, the structure and outline of this podcast. So the first three questions will be setting the stage type questions that will allow us to follow your thoughts uh, more cohesively and more precisely. The subsequent questions following that will be focused primarily on the content you presented during the faculty talk slash lecture um, yesterday here at UCF. So that'll be the meat of this podcast. And then naturally, as you did during yesterday's talk, um, that part of the conversation will bleed into some of the topics and, te- and themes that you will talk about in your upcoming book titled The Vortex, and Environmental History of the Modern World. But I want to give a dedicated space um, in the pod for your upcoming book. So the final set of questions will be that. And then some fun um, you know, questions at the end since I have the opportunity to talk to you here. So sounds good? All right. So my first question is... Um, I want you to define some of the most crucial terms and principles of your research so our audience could better appreciate the conversation we're going to have so define terms such as monoculture a generally speaking and b in the context of your research and other terms you wish to tell
1: us well the the way that i deal with the word monoculture is the classic way in which historians define things and if you operate in a a global context this is a world history of monoculture, you immediately struck with this huge diversity of organic production regimes uh, around the the globe. Uh, What I plan to do is look at monoculture in all its manifestations. It's something on fields. It's something in uh, citrus groves, like in Florida. It's something about factory farming. It's in aquaculture. It's in forestry. So uh, my use of the word monoculture is not in kind of a clear-cut definition because not, not, no definition could really capture the full diversity of the planet. It's more a set of questions that I'm asking. Why do we see, uh, in, in these very different production regimes all around the globe, why would we see the same tendency to focus on one product only? Um, with all the consequences that this has for producers, for uh, workers for environments for uh, political regimes. Um, it's really about inquiring about a problem that um, exists wherever you see this focus on one product. So for me, it's not really kind of a clear cut definition where we can say this is it or not. But it's really a matter of degrees to which the problems of monoculture show up. Got and it. Th- but but in the end, the definition is an economic one. Right. Uh, just because biologically, um, well, it is a biological concept, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, in, in the strictest terms, you will never find any spot on the planet where monoculture is purely, uh, purely in, in in biological terms. You will always find some bacteria, uh, if nothing else, uh, mm-hmm. that is uh, different from from the main crop. So it's really about the economic co- focus on one and only pro- on, on one 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 crop only.
0: Got it. Um, so. My next question, and this is something different that I, I haven't really done with the previous podcast that I've produced, but I feel like when I was coming up with these questions, this made the most sense to me um, to start off with this question. And that way, everyone, everyone being the listeners could understand um, the conversation afterwards. So, so I'm going to give you the opportunity right now to essentially tell us your audience your pitch as to why should we, as humans living in the 21st century, <laughs> care about monoculture and its problems and the ramifications of dismissing environmental history more broadly? Um,
1: Why should we care about monoculture? Frankly, I think monoculture is probably the most underrated challenge that we face in the 21st century. There is this hierarchy of issues uh, that we have um, in our conversation about environmental challenges. Climate change very often comes up on top. We're having this interview, right, where another uh, COP conference is taking place to deal with climate change. We're aware of energy woes. There's not much conversation about uh, monoculture. There's conversation about the consequences of monoculture. Agriculture is a major contributor to uh, uh, the uh, greenhouse effect. Um, It's a major driver of the loss of species on our planet and the loss of biodiversity, which is not really the same as loss of species. It's all the impoverishment of the environments. Um, And the idea of this project is really to inquire, well, why are we still um going for these monocultures we know so much about um the effects that monocultures have in so many ways including for the producers themselves so um dealing with monoculture is really talking about a really bad idea whose uh, problems should be obvious to every informed observer um but we need to understand what is driving us what brings us back to what's this focus in organic production on one and only product um and um work from there once we understand what is driving us here maybe we can make more sophisticated policies and particularly policies that do not deal with the symptoms of problems um, but really deal with the operating mode of our modern food production system right yeah the reason why i wanted to start off with such a, a heavy
0: hitter is because <laughs> i believe food and agriculture and agriculture in the broader environmental puzzle Uh, are significantly, like you said, underrated, (laughs) uh, overlooked, taken for granted aspects uh, of our society, especially in urban and uh,
1: Western developed nations, as you pointed out yesterday in yesterday's talk. That's why really it hits you where history comes from. I mean, it's not um, a coincidence that um th- these these issues do not come up in, in in many history classes. You can easily get through yeah. four years of studying history at at a university and never meet food um I- as a classroom topic. Yeah, it's true um, um well wh- why do we are we so forgetful about something that is so obviously part of our lives? Um, I think it has a lot to do with um the the western urban experience that for a long time you could be more or less an extra about this. You know, food was always there, always in the supermarket, was always cheap um, in the country where I live, Britain. Few people spend more than 20% of their income um, on food, even if there are uh, poor people. Wow. Um, so um, you could be tempted just by living in an urban Western society. just think like, This is not really something that is uh, a critical problem, something that just comes to you. Um, well, th- we should be clear that this is an exceptional situation for Western countries it's a situation that uh, many countries of the global south do not share and have not shared over the recent past this is really experience of the boom years the urbanizing industrializing societies um, of the west and there is a certain disdain that is hardwired into um, our historical consciousness that puts this to the margins but i think the problems of our time um and specifically of, of this year uh 2022 uh, when you talk about the grain from Russia and Ukraine and the global consequences of the war in Ukraine, uh, we talk about the energy woes, um, about the uh, resource troubles. I think there is currently a moment where uh, we realize there is a pretty big gap uh, in our historical consciousness, and we need to find ways to um, do something about this gap.
0: Yeah, your your answer for this question is exactly why I wanted to ask it first. So, you know, because I, I mean i was all i'm was fully unaware as i told you yesterday when i met you that uh and the reason why i was excited and still am excited to have you here and to talk about this is because it is you know things that you take for granted in a western nation you know i'm food is everywhere you're right and it's you don't know, you don't really think about it so that's why i wanted to start off like that so hopefully our listeners can um you know, get hooked onto this this
1: conversation. <laughs> but it's even important. You know, it's not just you know. It is a topic. There is a substantial literature of the last two decades that has made this point. And actually, part of my rationale for the is really looking into, well, finding ways to c- talk about food in an analytical way. There are a lot of these c- commodity histories. You know, the history of cod, the history of the banana, the history of citrus, mm-hmm. which are kind of um, kind of kitchen sink approach to history. You know, everything that you could find about um, your hero. Um, right. And you just accumulate that, and that is the story that you deliver. And I, th- I think that the big plus of my monoculture project is that I look with a clear focus. And I guess that's something that we'll come to. We look at different monocultures with the same set of questions. And um, the global food system has, well, it has been global before many humans uh, were, were global. Um, food items were among the first globally traded commodities, specifically bulk commodities. Uh, a key driver of uh, the globalization of of Europe. Um, and we need to look at it in in this global context to really understand what this means and what it does with us. So my last question in this
0: setting the stage uh, aspect um of the podcast is, and you could totally kind of cherry pick off the previous question because I understand how the two could be really similar, but I still wanted it. I still wanted to ask it as a standalone question. So, Why did you attack this phenomenon from a historical angle and not uh, a scientific one? I know you mentioned it earlier, but, you know, oftentimes it may seem uh, obvious as to why you choose one discipline over the other to answer Mm -hmm. certain questions. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, science is one of the most fundamental ways of understanding this in terms like monoculture like you said earlier Mm -hmm. uh you could be like oh well scientifically these are the variables at play and Mm -hmm. we hypothesize this to ascertain xyz whatever Mm -hmm. the case may be right but no instead
1: you looked at it from a historical approach
0: so why'd Mm -hmm. you do that
1: well I we think we should play you know scientific approaches against approaches from the humanities i mean these uh, conversation about the two cultures to quote cp snow's uh, famous famous firm um, I think as brought up that there are issues where uh, the sciences cannot answer all the questions that we should should be asking. Uh, science is hugely important for understanding the many problems of of monoculture. When it comes to biological challenges, uh, we need to bring the economists in to understand problems like overproduction and pro- commodity cycles. Um, but there's some things that uh, you cannot answer with uh, scientific um, theories, like the simple question: Why do we still? Uh, Go for monocultures. Um, There is no scientific theory of monoculture, no um, economic theory that will explain why producing foodstuff and other organic items through monocultures is a good idea. Um, What we do have is plenty of conceptual and empirical evidence that it is a bad idea in so many ways. Um, So answering this question is uh, something that the tools of science do not allow. And, well, this is a moment where I can bring in history as the classic kind of default option when you have a situation that you cannot explain in conceptual terms. Well, let's trace the path that we've taken. Let's see how we came here. Let's look at key moments where things could have taken a different term and, uh, most crucially, uh, phrase our findings in a way that um, highlights the challenges involved and the decisions um, that are taken here. So this is not just the st- way of you know telling the story, but it's about telling the story in a way that what fills this gap that the scientists have left us?
0: Yeah, no, I strongly agree with your answer um, because, you know, I, I'm actually a double major. I, my first major that when I came into college was biomedical sciences, and now I'm a history major. Mm-hmm. And you're 100% right. There are some questions that, you know, scientific, the scientific method can't answer. And that's okay. You know, it's not disparaging one over the other. In fact, uh, utilizing both, seeing which one could better reveal the broader story. You know, um, I think it's the right approach
1: to take, and that's why you did so. Yeah, I, I really agree with your answer that what you just said. And let's be honest: you know, the language of science and language of economics is numbers, right. uh, and I think there are many things that you cannot express uh, in numbers or right. just capture in a very yep. incomplete way. When it comes to loss of biodiversity, when it comes to loss of stability, um, they're really the language of uh, of quantification is a very poor uh, language, and that's one of my ambitions to. Um, start a conversation that really um, is about, well, talk about something that modeling and quantification really cannot capture uh, in full.
0: So my first question is, why did you title your talk yesterday,
1: quote, Making Sense
0: of the Juice, Florida Oranges and the Problems of Monoculture?
1: Yes, I was oh, I came here to present uh, my findings it's very easy to get lost um, in you know the the kind of the, the higher clouds um, that you are in. Of course, you lead the literature. you need to account for very different societies. You learn a lot about places that you've never visited. but I think it is crucial, uh, particularly when we talk about things like food and farming. um, it's really crucial to. Get your feet on the ground and I do actual case studies um and i discovered that florida citrus is is a great place to uh study the problems of monoculture there is a literature on florida citrus including historical literature but there is not that one big book that you can just consult uh, books that we have for quite a few other commodities now where basically answer all the questions but i saw there was no such book uh, for florida um i saw there were a few collections so uh, basically well, I p- took a parachute and jumped <laughs> off my plane <laughs> and tried to make sense of this in a very uh, rough manner And yesterday's experience, uh, I think in my opening remarks, I um, said it really felt a bit like coming back to grad school where you have done mm-hmm. some research. and um, But you're with amateur, the, the professionals are in the audience. And I didn't mean that. I mean, mm-hmm. that, and that's uh, kind of the risk and the learning experience that you need to make. Um, there is no contradiction between the regional approach and, and the global approach. Um the way, the... Um, in this place, uh, Florida, uh, Florida citrus groves, uh, I tried out some of the arguments that I make for Montreal in general. And conversely, I hope that um, you can write better case studies if you are aware um, of the global parallels and global similarities. But of course, uh, in order to do that properly, um, you should actually go to the place and talk with people who know way more about Florida history than I do. Um, and that was, that was the... The, the purpose of my exercise yesterday.
0: Well, I, I think you achieved that uh, performance of the exercise highly successful, and in this context now, it's uh, you're back to being the professional, and I'm yeah. the amateur, and that's why I'm all ears, trying to learn and, and allow you to educate me on this on this subject. So, um, but my next question is: so you start off with a slide title, and you you mentioned this in your previous answer, regional and global histories. Um, stating that agriculture is local, and then you gave some examples uh, of some states here in the U.S., like Florida, Texas, uh, California. But then
1: you also emphasize that agriculture is global. Can you you expand on that point? Well, it's one of the peculiarities. These monocultures grow as regional clusters, and uh, a lot of things come together, and the kind of if you want to phrase it in these terms, the, the kind of the rucksack that monoculture carry gets gets bigger and bigger all, over the time. It starts with the gender climate of Florida. As you might know, uh, citrus uh, trees are very sensitive to freezes. Um, in fact, part of the history of oranges in the state has been about the southward movement because, um, well, areas around Jacksonville. Um, found out um, over the course of the 19th century that uh, freezes actually do occur, and um, when they come with a certain severity, they actually destroy uh, citrus groves. So the fact that oranges came to be well produced mainly here in, in, in central Florida is a result of this uh, growth. But that's uh, just the climatic conditions, the right um, the right soil, enough water. These are fundamental requirements. What you see in these organic production regimes as much more develops. So a system of credit, um, a sales pitch in this case, uh, the allure of well, citrus growing in Florida for people uh, out of the state. A very big part of the um, expansion of citrus in, in Florida has been about getting people um, from somewhere north uh, to invest money, to come here for retirement and grow citrus trees. Um so you need a system of credit, you need boosters to tell all, all the wonderful things about um, Florida and its climate and how you can m- make money by growing citrus trees. You need um, a sys- an infrastructure, as so many times in, in U.S. history. It's the railroad that makes the crucial difference that transportation, um, fast transportation to urban centers becomes possible in the late 19th century century. Um, and then you have a growing infrastructure about the many problems um, that come up once you go uh, down a certain uh, route. Um, and you pile up a lot of things. But I think you'll uh, ask specific questions about those things, yep. right? <laughs>
0: um, so, in this same part uh, of the lecture, you stated, not not on the slides, but yourself with your voice, you stated that it, it's a rewarding um, It's rewarding studying a place like Florida, Um and I think you've you've been mentioning it a little bit here and there, so um, you don't have to go in too in-depth in that. But, um,
1: you know, why is it so? Um, well, it has uh, good archives, um, and, and, and archives that allow a multitude of angles um, on uh, these discussions. Um, I mean, the, the entire idea understanding uh, monoculture from the inside, it means you need to find places where farmers talk in an open, candid manner about their problems. And they do. I mean, it's... Uh, sometimes in magazines, very often in associations where among themselves and need to you know try to come to terms uh, with the problems. There are files um, at Lakeland, at Gainesville, in Tallahassee that allows us to kind of look them uh, over the shoulder. Um, and of course, what drew me here was the friendly historians like Connie Lester, who I hope is listening to this, um, uh, because she was very helpful in uh, guiding me to well, places that are so filling in the, the gaps in my, in my knowledge of Florida history. So um, all these things um, came together, a bit like you know, a jigsaw puzzle. Right. There's still a lot of missing parts, but right. I think that's that's part of uh, the, the craft of history, uh, writing complete stories based on incomplete material.
0: <laughs> I like that, yeah, I'll definitely. Uh, that, that's going to stick in my head, I like that. Um, so on that same slide, the final point you make uh, as a big takeaway of this part of the lecture that environmental challenges are a way to make global history simpler um, because there is a baseline of similarities uh, no matter what part of the world we're talking about and that's strictly because of the laws of nature uh, so um, my follow-up question I guess to that you know prelude is what makes environmental history different from studying let's say a political history or cultural history and I know you have some type of experience in those realms too so
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I always consider myself a historian of the modern era, Uh, no qualification. Um, I I think I told us yesterday that I came to the the place where I did my training as as someone interested in social history, Um, not specifically in environmental history, this broad focus has always been uh, with me, um, and I've been part of this wave of interest in, in global history in recent years, um, that living in a global society, we need to move beyond the national histories that um, are, you know, n- writing national history was once, once the justification why the entire project of academic history writing started, so uh, moving beyond is is a very big step, and of course the complexity of the planet really hits you when you do that. Um <laughs> There's one thing that um, I've discovered working on environmental um, his issues uh, around the world is that there is this this baseline of similarities wherever you burn coal you always have um the, well, the question how how do you get the coal that only certain regions produce coal you always have the problem in computer combustion and smoke particles you always um, imply that coal to global warming um just because there is this um, the, the challenges are not identical but reasonably similar and if you uh, look at the planet in this way, that gives you a baseline of similarities that provides backbone to any global quests. And that's different from uh, political um, history or cultural history there. You very quickly come up with a cataclysm of complications. Um, doesn't speak against you know, globalizing these fields as right. well. Um, and it shows the limits. You know, once mm-hmm. you talk about how political regimes respond to something like smoke or something like promise of monoculture, a lot depends on is it a democracy it's an autocracy is it a rich country is it a poor country is it an urban country is it an industrial country all of these things matter um but you can push uh, well y- it makes your history um a bit similar and you can make these comparisons uh, even when they don't offer themselves uh, on first glance i mean there's obviously a similarity of citrus in california and florida uh, and in the new countries that uh, grow um, uh, oranges like uh, brazil which is, has uh, outpaced Florida as a um, orange producer for quite a while now, um, but um, my, my project, looking at monocultures in, in a global context, is about well, l- let's look at um, what 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 do the same type of challenges—biological, economic, political. Um, how much of similarities do we see here? Or if you allow the metaphor, um, what are the kind of guardrails that establish themselves? The ways uh, in which you can handle problems? Um, And uh, what is the range of legitimate action around the globe? So capturing the diversity of the globe is important remains important and respecting the diversity and the peculiarities of places is important um but um the, the um it, it, i think it's good that environmental challenges allows for the similarity because you easily end up when you do when you go global with this um insight well it's all hugely complex and there right. is great diversity in the world yes we knew that mm-hmm. but i think in order to make sense of the plan we need to have these clear cut arguments um that we can work with yeah, I, I I agree, and I and I respect that because have people probably like oh no,
0: this is too too broad or whatever the case may be, but you you ended up going for it anyways.
1: Um, and there's not just this thing about complexity; it's also the, the narratives that producers themselves produce. Right. Every commodity regime thinks it is special; it has its own mythology, its own way to naturalize its own existence. And I think we should see through this. This, this is the strategy to um, consolidate themselves, make themselves. Um, look inevitable. It's a way to marshal political support, and it's a way to distract from the many risks of doing a monoculture. These narratives really serve a purpose. It's very easy to take the air out of these uh, mythologies. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just over the weekend. I took one of these uh, citrus tours and and was on a on a bus with someone who f- heard for the first time that citrus trees are not native to Florida. <laughs> yep, there is a mythology here. Um, you can take that apart. But I think the more important task is to see well these myths fulfill a function
0: right right and i have a a a cool question about that later on because i I, I like that i find it very interesting that you brought up that point in during yesterday's lecture um but another fascinating point you brought up yesterday was and that i was fully unaware of um was that there are more people obese than starving in the world and (laughs) um you know when you really think about it it, it blows my mind. I mean for me I mean if you're listening to this and that doesn't blow your mind, I don't know what will because that that's shocking. So um you know it just goes to show you the modern food system and you know. So can you explain this shocking phenomenon to our, our listeners please because it's truly fascinating? Um
1: yeah, it's it's the, that the modern food system has this it has made these enormous gains in in productivity. Whatever commodity you look at over the last 100 years, particularly after 1945, uh you have virtual explosion of productivity per acre or per animal. Um, the chicken that we have are much bigger than anything we've had in history. The yields of grain are, are much higher. And a lot of that hinges on the use of new tools, uh, systematic breeding um, but that kind of teases out and pushes really the um, biological material to the limits. In fact, changes our entire conception of what organic production is, because thinking about animals in terms of biological material is itself an abstraction and a, a way to um, depersonalize um, uh, uh, creatures. Um, so uh, this, uh, and, and you see the um, effect in, in, in the outcome in, in the fact that when it comes to the total available food um, on our planet, um, there is more than enough for us, uh, overeating, becoming obese um, is, is a serious problem, not just in the industrialized world, um, so it's really, um, in terms of nutrition terms, more more question um, on a global scale about what do we eat uh, rather than will we have enough to eat. This question, do we have enough to eat, the Malthusian logic of, you know, too many people, not enough food. That is a ghost that is with us, and that's why I say you know we need to write a history of monoculture equally as a mythology um, that uh, explains why people come back to to Malthus time and again because this you know uh, proving him wrong, showing this enormous productivity um, is um, um, is something that the, the food system is is proud of. Um, there is the critique that points out this all ghosts. At the expense of the environment, as goes to the expense of, of workers, many farming existences. Um, the, the 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 equally amazing fact is that we have achieved this production miracle with a dwindling number of farmers globally. Um, wherever you are in the industrialized world now, farming is a small minority. Even in the countries of the global south, um, it is uh, the number of farmers is, is shrinking while production uh, per farmer is going through the roof um but i mean the idea is you know to 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 move beyond this binary of well one party celebrates the production results the other points to the side effects um i think we need to find a narrative that moves beyond this binary and uh, really inquires what does it mean to to work in fruit production and to um achieve these tremendous gains
0: yeah i'm going to ask it now because this is the second time you bring it up and yeah, i think this is a good place to to really hone in on this so you know the mythology aspect of this history right you know i this is actually something that i recently learned in one of my history classes this semester with a professor you met yesterday at the talk uh, dr pineda um and it's like the roles of of myths in history and you know how those are two inextricably linked con- concepts right uh and you know rather than seeing them as contrasting or competing concepts they could both be used by Historians are just everyday people to more accurately reveal uh, to us in the present what the real time events were and how people in that era felt about those events. So um, can you explain it in terms of the mythology of, of Florida Citrus and how to understand the function of that myth?
1: Well, I think the um, mythology of Florida citrus, I guess I don't need to elaborate here <laughs> to any extent to uh, listeners in Florida right. about what it means for the state. Um, it is, you know, orange juice is the state beverage since mm-hmm. 1967. Um, you see the orange on each uh, license uh, plate. Yep. Uh, so uh, um, the uh, Im- imagery is just uh, there. It's very powerful. Um, but it depicts something as natural that um, is anything but that. This is a and it, it it looks at the product. It doesn't look at the um, uh, very extensive, very finance-intensive uh, network behind it. Um, that's uh, one of the ways in with myths. Well, you look at the product. You don't look at the entire system that uh, produces these. You don't see who is profiting. You don't think capital, though. Of course, capital is at the heart of well, everything we've been talking about so far. This is a story about what capitalism means in agriculture and how the capitalist logic has taken over um, in a food that was traditionally about just growing your own food for survival. That is historically what agriculture is all about. You grow your own food and then you see whether you have anything left for um, other purposes. That logic is completely gone with the modern uh, food system. So uh, looking at the function of these uh, myths and something that naturalizes things that are natural, uh, is a really important part of critical history.
0: So this is um, where your your lecture shifts, so also this part of the pot a little bit. So th- you know to the Florida citrus industry, and you know we we are starting to talk about it more right now, um, and its role in the larger global drift towards monoculture. Um, can you explain the origins of the Florida citrus industry and when, how, and why it started drifting towards monoculture?
1: Yeah, well, the classic historian's question: What is you know what is the origins? Um, well, citrus trees have been in Florida since uh, the 16th century, part of the Columbian Exchange, the globalization of botanical species, and that uh, is is part of the globalization of Europe. Um, it's, it, I think you can speak of a citrus industry since, well, somewhere in late 19th century, as so often, uh, when you have growing urban markets, when you have growing volumes of certain intensification, um, but you still have, well, the push for monoculture is still... A bit tepid, in fact, uh, one of the discoveries, one of the quotations I showed in my lecture yesterday was from the Florida De- Department of Agriculture of of, of 1939, where uh, the Florida Department of Agriculture warns, do not bank everything on one crop. You can um, have much more profitable agriculture. That's never disproven, but it shows that at that point before the Second World War, um, there, there was still a sense, well, this is part of farming it's not necessarily syn- synonymous the, the, their commitment to monoculture was still uh, a bit tentative well then comes the second world war then come the boom years the huge demand on, and the population growth that creates and these these expanding urban right. markets um and then comes uh, the frozen concentrate revolution uh the discovery of a way to make an orange juice that actually tastes well orange juice was around before the first uh, before the second world war but it was really the outlet for um oranges that didn't bring sufficient quality and um, all the testimonials we have about the taste of this orange juice was that it was really something for hardy stomachs or people with with uh, not enough money um, so having a well-tasting orange juice is an innovation that comes out of the second world War or about this push for um state-led research in the war um and the big boom comes um, after uh, the second world war in 1945. Citrus production in uh, Florida was about equal to production in California. Um, Historically, Florida was always the second producer. California was leading, but Florida took over uh, in 1945. And by 1960, uh, Florida produced almost three times the amount of citrus products as California did. Wow.
0: You passionately stated during the portion of your lecture when you introduced monoculture that, quote, there is no plausible theory of monoculture. And plenty of theoretical and empirical evidence for the problems Um, you even go further um, that this is vividly seen uh, as a history of crisis and muddling through them can you explain and expand on that point for our listeners Mm.
1: yeah I think we need to really rethink the way we um, we speak about crisis Um, I think it still has this echo of the boom years where um, well we had crisis but they were spatially uh, chronologically limited they were over after a while um, and there was the exception. The normal uh, state of affairs was some kind of stability, some kind of order. Well, I don't think this works anymore in the twenty-first century, and not just for agriculture. Really, uh, as a, as a global conception, um, I talked about a class that I taught in England um, early in the year. Uh, we were talking about exactly this question. You know, does you know does our way to t- talk about crisis as something that is limited in time and over after a while? Does this still make sense? And, well, of course, these were students who were living in Brexit and austerity and all sorts of turbulences. COVID, of course, very prominent on um, our, our minds. Um yet this entire idea about um, having crisis on multiple fronts, a crisis that overlap, um, crisis that don't actually have a... A uh, proper ending, like we 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 know for COVID, it's not really ending. It's just we we move on and think it is over. Right. Uh, we really need to accept that maybe the, dealing with crisis on multiple fronts is uh, the new normal and has always been. I mean, this idea um, of crisis, are over while it never made much sense uh, beyond the affluent societies of of the West. Uh, there's also this temptation, you know, uh, if you have read your Karl Marx, um, uh, it's always tempting to the uh, crisis is, you know, all just the prelude, because um, the crisis of capitalism um, is bound to create all these tensions, all these contradictions that are um, setting the stage for the revolution. Well, we are in 21st century, we know that capitalism has this um, incredible ability to somehow make it um, through uh, the next crisis. Right. And maybe, uh, you know, we need to learn to talk about crisis and thing that is always there, but without the teleology that I've kind of inherited from, from Marxist readings of history.
0: So you took some time during the lecture to talk about the role of gender in this history and how it's an overwhelmingly male business. Can you
1: elaborate on that point? Yeah, that's something that struck me when I looked at um, monocultures on the, on the world, that um, there, there's a tendency that um, these um, production regimes become more, uh, more masculine, um, that, well, first of all, you see more male faces, but also there's a certain type of um, testosterone-fueled sense uh, in there. For Florida Citrus, it's um, very easy to make that case. Uh, there is um, um, a project called the Florida Citrus Hall of Fame, uh, which is online, which is a great uh, source of information, but also a great reflection of a community of growers. Right? Um, or not just growers. I mean, um, the Hall of Fame includes a lot of um, bureaucrats, researchers nowadays. Um, but out of the 200 members of the Florida Citrus Hall of Fame, there are exactly um, two women, none of whom is uh, a grower, Um, Mm -hmm. That is uh, male-heavy, even by the gender standards of Western agriculture. And, uh, yeah, I was thinking about, you know, how do you conceptualize this? I'm playing with a comparison with another male archetype of modernity, the modern soldier. Um, That, in a way, the situation uh, that people working in a monoculture is, is in, in many respects, similar to this male type of the modern soldier. You need to work with others. Uh, the modern military is, is teamwork. It has its hierarchies. These hierarchies are um, not not always given. Uh, all of, of it based on, on merit rather than a formal position. Um, and it's very much about mastery of modern technology. Modern warfare is about mastering complex and, and understanding complex machinery uh, and, and sh- becoming part of this to some extent. That's the same for uh, the uh, ways monocultures work. I mean, the, everything we see out there in the Citrix nowadays if you take away the technology, it wouldn't last very long. So understanding this and really becoming, uh, really thinking in technological terms is, is a crucial uh, part of building monocultures. And there is this this uh, stark binary between um, well, victory and defeat. Or in the monocultures, either you make a profit and you stay in business, or you're bankrupt. Um, that's a crucial difference uh, about the modern food system versus almost everything we've had before that. Um, Historically, the key fear in the farming sector was you don't have enough food to make it through uh, the next winter. So starvation uh, and lack of food was the key fear. Well, today's farmers no longer fear starvation, they fear going bankrupt.
0: Man, you're good. Uh, You know, you you got two questions in one and, um, you know, it's like you're And it was naturally, it wasn't forced or anything, so that was awesome. So there, you answered my next question. But all right, so let's jump into now um, the challenges of this history, right? So uh, you start off by saying that it's a crude way of thinking to assume that this history is only a countryside problem. Can you expand on that point?
1: Um, Well, the the Bonne Food System is really about um, the consumers and and the countryside. And it's really about bringing the countryside in our history of modernity. Um, Right. That uh, food production is is about these complex commodity chains that allow um, force a lot of people to work together and to make sure that the citrus fruits arrive in proper shape, um, and that implies a lot of things that can go wrong along the way. Um It starts with you know, establishing quality standards crucial for long commodity chains that you know um, have a reasonable certainty that something arrives at the end that has a certain. Quality level, establishing all these rules is, is not a trivial thing. I mean, they, they, they may look self nowadays, but this is all a complex and long story about negotiating that. So, finding standards, finding the merchants, finding the transport means, um, um, dealing with overproduction. I mean, the, the, the uh, amazing thing about um, the modern food system is, you know, once you have these kind of moments where you have a winning formula, the expansion often outpaces demand. Um, so, completely contrary to what Malthus told you uh, who was you know concerned about the limits of food production Act the 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 shift from a boom situation to a crisis situation is often just a matter of years uh, here in Florida citrus growers in the forties were uh, optimistic um many had expanded um acres um on, uh, with citrus trees in the war um as as so many fields maximum production was Uh, the order of the day. During the war um, then came the the frozen concentrate revolution. Um, Expansion was even more the order of the day. Um, There was a hope for an uh, endless market for uh, orange juice. Well turns out that by the late 50s early 60s the discussion shifts to what we do without with all those oranges. Uh, Who is there out there uh, that is uh, willing to buy them and of course overproduction always has the consequence of um, declining market prices um so this shift from what to do about overproduction and finding an outlet for for is one of the challenges that come with quantity and very much typical i mean this 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 overproduction problem is the notorious problem of monocultures around the world um it's it's really that they are in a way too productive too successful and um that uh, so many farmers have have made this experience that um expanding production leads to declining prices and then ends up in a a rat race that very few farmers survive in. That's what we need to be clear about. When we talk about farming in the 20th century, we're talking about a small minority that makes it, an even smaller minority really makes money with it, and a very large group of people who drop out because there is no longer a viable business proposition.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. The overproduction um, and that constant search by the industry to, to look for new markets and new outlets is definitely one of the most significant challenges, and I have that here written down as one of my, my biggest bullet points for this topic. And there was even like a, a fun little segue you, you, you talked about during yesterday's uh, lecture about, um, you know, there, there's not a word for juice in Sweden. Oh.
1: yeah either. Well, there is one now, now right, and, to, right. That, and there is, if you look into a Swedish dictionary now, what is the Swedish word for uh, juice? It's juice. Yeah. And that is <laughs> th- and that is courtesy of the Florida Citrus Commission, which um, is looking for these outlets. I mean, they have right. a um, this is the classic post war uh, story um, where does American industry dump its overproduction? Oh, there is Western Europe. Um, the, so the Florida Citrus Commission has somebody in Europe in uh, since 1955, uh, and it's really a smashing success. They put the word juice on. Uh, buses in Stockholm. There was not a word for juice in the Swedish language, so they had to just you know market the entire concept of um, of, of juice there, and quite successfully though. Of course, the need for vitamin C in, in cold weather plays right. a big role. But uh, do you want me to explain the story about France as well here? Floor's yours. You're, you're just you know you're. Uh. If you want to, if you don't, it's all good. <laughs> now, for me, the, the the Florida men of citrus, they, you know, they, they 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 go. Let's let let me say they go to Europe with a certain innocence regarding the diversity of nations in Europe, and that uh, plays out uh, rather unwell in in France um, in 1960. France is, um, um, in but, well, a kind of state of Latin civil war over Algeria. Their civil war in Algeria since 1954. And this Algerian question is really driving the country to the brink um, of the collapse of of the French democracy. Charlie Gold is in power. And as it happens, Algeria is a very big producer of oranges. Uh, So these uh, Florida citrus men come to Paris, and they really don't realize that they put their feet into the most controversial topic um, of French for for politics. And, yeah, they have a reception. It ends up with lots of French people bemoaning why they want to take away... They're oranges. It means everything to them. We don't need Florida oranges in France. Um, And there is not very much that uh, Florida men can say by way of of, of, uh, defending this practice.
0: Yeah, I remember you mentioning that yesterday and you kind of like uh, put an an analogy of like how um, some people in Europe... Don't really understand the difference. Like uh, I think you said,
1: I- Idaho and Florida, something similar well, like it, that. Well, it goes the other way around as well, right? Yeah, that's, that's what I'm saying. If I t- tell about the diversity of of the United States to European growers, uh, you're doing me. If I speak about the diversity of uh, right. the United States uh, in Europe, um, yeah, it's um, a certain part of the country. Like Florida, right, um, right, are right. very much prominent on the on the mental map in, in Europe. but right. That there are places like Idaho or uh, Io- Idaho or mm-hmm. Iowa or um, Mississippi; those places do not figure on the mental map. Or, of course, part of those United States. Um, so, it, it's a really mutual thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but sure. here, you can just um, see how this plays out. Um, and yeah, I mean, they, they, how how the local always comes back. I mean, this is my, my case. You know, it's not a global history versus regional history, but these local conditions, national politics, they come back into the picture um, time and again, and they need to do these these stories. Arguably the most daunting challenge,
0: um, and you could agree or disagree, that's why I want to know your take on it, um, is is the the, the role of the corporate heavyweight um, and the monopolization of the industry um, uh, by these businesses. So can you expand on that and to what extent Has the problem been addressed?
1: Hmm. Well, um, one of my arguments is that something happens after 1945 and that the monocultures become more pervasive, more the default mode, uh, more universal, more brutal. um, And it's crucial to see that the launch of these new monocultures is to a great extent supported by the state state authorities in their full diversity and by creating infrastructure by creating expert systems uh, the frozen concert erosion was the result of government-sponsored research um, that um, allowed for this uh, breakthrough um, but uh, well the for, for a citrus story is i think illustrated what happens next um, the um government-owned corporation um called Minutemate is um, sold to Coca-Cola in 1960, um, which illustrates the takeover of large multinational uh, corporations uh, in the juice sector. Um, you probably know that uh, Tropicana was bought um, by, by by Pepsi uh, later on, after being built by um, a self-made millionaire, uh, Anthony Rossi, here in Florida. Um, there's a third um, company in the sector, Florida's Natural, which is a cooperative. Uh, but that's it. Um, three companies that divide the market, and that is a dominance that allows these companies to, um, well, not just squeeze other people in the business. Right. When it comes to growers, um, well, these companies have their own uh, citrus groves, uh, but the independent grower has uh, has struggled a lot. Um, um, in, in light of this market power. It's not just something about market power, though. It's it's also um, that these companies have um, a, a level of technological sophistication and have um, tools that are just impossible to replicate. Um, I talked yesterday about uh, a case where uh, Anthony Rossi, owner of Tropicana, was caught for adding sugar syrup to his orange juice in 1960 and was made to kowtow in front of the Florida Citrus Commission. A pretty humiliating moment for uh, uh, somebody who is a self-made millionaire. Um, That cannot happen again because the flavor pack um, that is now at the heart of uh, Orange Shoes production, um, it's a closely guarded secret of the company. And you cannot take it away because the moment you take it away, that is a core asset of these companies. that they will well, they will never make this public, just as Coca Cola will never reveal its its own formula. Um, so this is um, you know a, a way in which knowledge and high tech creates for a culture of impunity that well these corporations kind of get away with many things. And to answer your question about what to do about it, well, um, I don't think we have found an answer. But having worked on monocultures uh, for a while now, I'm, I'm fairly certain that controlling um controlling monopolies or oligopolic uh, oligopolitic uh, situations is really crucial about getting a handle on monocraies reversing this trends and pushing for more diversity. and please note monoco- uh, monopolies are not just about uh, controlling the markets, it's also about controlling knowledge. right yep I have that here written down. That's one of the the
0: final points you made during um, the talk yesterday. It's controlling the knowledge, controlling uh, the tech. Um. yeah so it's it's not just the the markets it's you're absolutely right and, and you know that's go ahead. you know that's um,
1: i mean a key point that that that, that uh, of this entire project you know that this is a history project uh, it's about understanding the inner inner workings of the the food system and why it has managed to overcome so many crises i mean i sometimes say that the history of monoculture is about the greatest stumble on earth um that it keeps rumbling on, it keeps overcoming crisis, She keeps cutting corner, but it still survives in some form. So that's an exciting piece of history writing. But it's also background knowledge for everybody who wants to uh, talk about monoculture and deals do something about um, the brutality of monoculture in the 21st century. You need to understand where they come from, and you need to understand the tools that they used to um, make it through so many crises. So this is a way to produce a history that actually speaks to our current predicaments. And well, as you know, the history is always, you know, the question: Why do we need to look back? We have so many challenges. We have, um, we, need to, we need sciences and technology to master our challenges. Yes, we do. But uh, there are some questions where you just cannot get um, to, to uh, feasible solutions alone. You need history as a resource to um, come up with better, better solutions.
0: Yes, 100% agreed. Beautifully said. Um, you keep going back to 1945, and I also noticed this throughout in your lecture yesterday. I wrote it down countless of times, and then came up to a form as a question that I'm asking now. So, you know, uh, but I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you the 1945 within this other question if that makes any sense to you. So, an interesting theme that you stated towards the finale of your lecture in this history is from the helpful to the helpless state. And then, as you've been saying throughout this podcast, and as you said yesterday, 1945 is just like inflection point of this phenomenon. So, can you please explain? Um, I think this fascinating way of conceptualizing this overall
1: trajectory for for our, our listeners. Yeah, I think the um, the modern state is crucial in so many ways for the making of um, of, of the modern food system. Um, starting with the system of trade, starting with the infrastructure that is in place. Um, uh, with um, support for research institutions that become um, important, ever more important since the late nineteenth century, uh, a lot of the government uh, of the research that underpins farm production is um, uh, government-sponsored. Well, it no longer is. Um, the even in the U.S., which has probably the world's most expensive system of agricultural research, even here, private expenditures. Um, outpaid uh, state expenditures since the 1980s. Uh, so you have a corporate takeover um, of uh, the, the research business, and of course corporations have their own rationale. Uh, they want to sell products, um, and whether they uh, these, these solutions come down to holistic solutions is entirely optional uh, for them. Uh, we see that many of the things that the state has done historically uh, are now um, on the agenda of the large multinational corporation. I talked about the standards. Um, I talked about safety. Um, all these were battles of the late 19th, early 20th century just to come up with grading standards, uh, come up with uh, food safety standards um, when it comes to you know slaughtering the f- Chicago slaughterhouses, classic case of um, curtailing public health hazards. Um, that was a success story of the state, but Today's multinational corporations no longer need control for these things. They do this as part of their um, um, normal operating mode to control all the processes, including those. Uh, We need a different type of governance that looks at monopolies, that pushes for diversity, and of course makes um, sure that all the costs that are externalized, be it agricultural labor, be it environmental issues, uh, and be it um, the dietary um um the dietary problems the the fact that we eat too much and that we eat the wrong food correcting all these things needs a new type of uh government policy uh, and a new type of state and we're in the process of inventing that kind of state
0: so you mentioned before that controlling these big corporations and the monopolization of the industry and its tech and its knowledge is one it's one crut- uh, critical way of solving this, this grand issue but um, so since you already talked about that, but I want to ask, where does the consumer's role play into this? You know, are everyone listening is most likely a consumer, and not a grower. So mm-hmm. where do
1: we fall into this big puzzle? Well, the, the sheer fact that I can you know formulate this project and that we can talk about the problems of monoculture is the result of so many consumers of the last half century who have asked critical questions, who a- bought organic food, and you know opened up alternatives to the dominant food system. So. Um, the uh, significance of consumer choices cannot be overestimated. Um, But uh, we're also at the point where I think we need to be realistic. Um, Consumer choices are one of the most important fields of applied ethics. Uh, It says a lot about you and um, whether you want to be responsible for your actions, what kind of food you buy. Um, But there was this hope once that the consumer would just decide everything in a wise way and that would kind of feedback into the global food system. Well, what we've seen is the grow of a sizable market, 10, 20, maybe 30% in countries that have a really great level of awareness, but that's where it petters out. Um, They hope that the remaining 60, 70, 80% of the food market would just kind of fall into place and change. No, that is the big uh, challenge uh, in our time. Uh, What do we do about um, the bulk market? How do we make sure that uh, in the production of um, the bulk foodstuff, certain rules are followed. The trend toward monoculture is well, first of all stalled and and reverted. Uh, so, this hope that consumer choice alone, important as they are individually and collectively, um, that they alone will drive change, I think that dream is over.
0: Yeah, yeah. You stated that yesterday that that's not
1: it's part of the the solution, but it's not the magic formula. I wish it were otherwise, but yeah. that's the experience of the last uh, decades that. Um, the growth of this sector, um, it, it's, still, it, it's, it's still a growing sector, that's uh, encouraging, but the rate of the growth is no, nowhere nearly where we can project um, over the next one or two decades that this will take over the entire food system. You closed the lecture with a slide titled
0: Monoculture, and it said, quote, a global history of how we inadvertently came to feed 8 billion people <laughs> and background knowledge on an underrated challenge, end quote. Can you explain
1: what you mean by that statement and why you decided to close on that note? Yeah, that's my swipe at the Malthusian, um, um, you know, myth and the, right. the mythology of the food system. We are so productive; we've we've done it. And mm-hmm. please don't ask any critical questions. I mean, the, the thing about you know feeding the world is nobody thinks about feeding the world. This is really about different stakeholders, different parties with different interests, different mindsets. Uh, food production is a web where m- many people have to come together uh, and do their part. Um, and um, these people want to make profit, they want to um, um, sell products. Um, so um, thinking of these global terms um, is, is is just you know pointless. Um, we need to talk about what are the interests of individual people who profits, um, who pays. Um, and um, it just so happened that we were able to feed eight, uh, billion humans uh with with the output of this global food system so you know thinking about this as a constantly innovating uh, t- um, uh, system um, and something that um, we need to work towards each and every day um is is um that that's the story that I'm trying to tell here that this is something that um theoretic wasn't supposed to happen but somehow did and telling that history as a history that was theoretically important but but, but practically realistic um, that's um, you know this the saying from uh, Eleanor Ostrom um, who is as you know the first woman who won the Nobel uh, Prize for Economics uh, who was this? You know, it's it's underrecognized that she didn't just you know have this tremendous work on the commons, but that her work on the commons was also criticism of this interfituation with laws and models that has taken over in economics. And she said that um, the uh, a resource arrangement that can work in practice can work in theory. And we can push this even further and saying, you know, monoculture proves that a resource, a r- a regime that cannot work in theory can stumble along in practice. And really telling the story in this um, story, you know, the, the stumble may be the prelude to the fall or we may stumble on um, and produce these externals for quite a while. But this is an open story, uh, but uh, getting us less confident about how this story is written and how it uh, continues to play out in the 21st century. I think this is this is crucial. There is no and in food history, and will never be as long as we have humans on the planet. Um, And writing this history um, with everything in limbo, it's it's an intellectual challenge. It doesn't satisfy our craving for moral order, but maybe we need to find more disorderly ways um, to um, write history.
0: Right. No, for sure. And that's why I think your work on this and in your upcoming book, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm highly looking forward to it because it, it is a difficult challenge and it's not your, your typical way of going about things in a historical scholarship, uh, point of view per se. All right. So those were all the questions from um, the faculty book talk event. So if you weren't there, um, I hope this, this podcast could kind of fill you in on what you missed out. It was a great talk. So now we're going to come on to the upcoming book questions, uh, smoothly transitioning us from, you know, your previous answer to, to these set of questions. So can you please explain the title of your book? Because personally, <laughs> I find it absolutely interesting, the symbolism and the feelings it provokes. <laughs> I mean, personally,
1: so can you explain that? The Vortex is the title of um, the environment, environment history of the modern world. And it's, it's, it's a metaphor for how do we imagine... Um, modern history. What if we imagine it as a giant vortex um, and a giant vortex? This is not, you know, the thing that you know from a ba- bathtub, but really um, a huge system of interconnections with lots of turbulence, lots of cross currents, lots of obstacles, and many ways to navigate um, in in such a vortex. Um, I mean, I like the metaphor because it evokes this... Well, it evokes the momentum of stuff in motion. I think that's an undercurrent of modern history that we, you know, need to appreciate more, that we push so much stuff around or is the stuff pushing us around? I mean, Mm -hmm. that, that question... Um, the vortex brings that out very nicely. Right. That in a way we are, you know, we're not. We're at the mercy of the elements, mm-hmm. and we are um, in, 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 in food and many other issues. We need to work with the flow. Um, when you talk about monocultures, it's very easy to compile a litany about why it's such a bad idea and why we should abandon it. But we we can't just you know stop producing if all the monocultures disappear. Uh, all of a sudden we would all be starving within a matter of weeks or months um so being you know driven by a flow is, is a quintessential modern experience and it brings in this this sense of disorder I just talked mm-hmm. about how we need to write uh, more disorderly stories and m- my ambition was to write a, a world history um um of environmental issues broadly conceived um and so it's you know it's what the things that we in the West see as environmental issues—when it talks about pollution, um, it's about wildlife, nature reserves—but really, in a, in a wider concept, that the environment that sustains us in so many ways. How do we get all that stuff that we think or we, uh, that we think we need um, to a What does that mean on a on a finite planet that we allocate uh, all these um, all these commodity streams? So uh, the idea was: let's write this history in a way that is less certain about the frame of references. So this, you know, eternal question becomes to synthesis. You know, how does it all fit together? Well, my idea was: let's write a history where it does not come together in some way, where the tensions are um, enduring, they do not get resolved, and they accumulate. Right. Uh, And and the process for each environmental challenge is that over the course of the modern era, we've accumulated uh, a tremendous legacy. Um, that frames our understanding. It's cultural, it's political, it's material, it's technological. Um, It is conventions, ways of talking. The entire idea that environmental problems are something that is a given, I hope that people who read my book will never use that word, environmental problem, in an innocent way again and instead inquire, well, what kind of problem for whom? Um and uh, writing this story in a way that well lets people experience what it means to be in a vortex mm-hmm. and to uh, write them in an, an open-ended way that all these tensions are just accumulating they sometimes get resolved to some extent sometimes we abandon something but there's not very much. I mean there are lots the usual um response of tensions is that well they get re- resolved by power or the marginalization of some people but not in a kind of, Neat dialectical three-step. um so, um and writing this as an open-ended history, while our contradictions linger and remain for us to make sense of, um that is the kind of history that um, I'm writing. so there is there's something subversive in this uh, book. and I think that's that's what we need in the twenty first century. So it's really it's it's a world history for an age where we you know where we know what's coming, we have the tools, but somewhere we fail to get our act together and trying to work back from that. and So, you know, maybe that calls for a different type of history than, you know, the, the the standard environment histories that at the end have, you know, 10 little things you can do to save the planet. Um, maybe we need a conversation about, well, how do we come to this kind of complication? How do we make responsible decisions that do not deny the complexity, but try and somehow work with it? That's that, the commercial section. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I love it. And I for people... To, to, to
0: picture in their heads how this conversation is going I am vigorously nodding throughout that entire answer because it, it, it really uh it speaks to me I love it I love it so I can't wait and
1: um and may I say this I mean at my sense you know, especially the language younger generations they really you know this this way of history writing without the neat conclusion right um it appeals to younger people more if I may mm-hmm. you know the, the book is out in German um, um already and okay. the responses were very much you know the people you know this experience of being out there at sea and being at the mercy of elements and having this dizziness and not these kind of clear bearings it you know it i you know i'm i'm about 50 so it's a bit you know <laughs> a bit um uncomfortable to say so but i think it resonates with the experience of people who are younger than i am yeah i mean maybe it, it it's a part of uh you know the
0: the hectic experience that we, my like my generation, so people around my age in the twenties have experienced in their lifetime—it's been kind, I mean, of, that, kind of a roller coaster. Yeah,
1: you know. it's it's a roller coaster, and you know, it's not about that we do not know. This is the the new thing. I mean, that and the, how environmental challenges have really changed over the last uh, f- uh, five uh, decades since and, you know, with with all the upswing of, of research that. Um, Know, part of the great success story of the modern um, scientific research community that they have produced certainty on so many things um, that we know about. We know what is coming in the environment about um, all the many crises, but uh, the challenge is how do we fit this together into meaningful strategies? Right. And that is really a new, um, a new situation that, that we're facing here and maybe become a bit more aware of how it came to this complexity and this inability to get our act together yeah, that's, that's a little bit my hope to uh, provide some background knowledge for dealing with environmental challenges in a world society where um, every decision you make locally, nationally um, has repercussions on, on a global scale um, and dealing with this in a way that doesn't deny that complexity but kind of works with it. Uh, I think that's the way forward in the 21st century. So how long have you been working on the book project? How long has it been? It's, well... It's one of those things where you don't really know when it starts. You know, n- nobody gets out of the bat and says, "I write a world history." And and and, <laughs> and let me tell you, you know, they, they actually doing that, it's 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 one of those things, you know, kind of you kind of at some point, okay, now you either abandon that fantasy or you try it to do for real. But it's right. some ten years of. Researching and thinking and and writing and correcting and and learning about all the, all the silly things that I wrote in the first draft, um, it really you know having a sense of humility about the limits of your knowledge as part of sure. uh, this 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 project. But this is um, this has been the the thing that has uh, kept me busy for the last some ten years. Nice, that's awesome.
0: And um, so you said that the book's already out in Germany. So wh- when will it
1: be out here in the the states? Will be out by the with the University of Pittsburgh Press um, in uh, February. Okay, and it's called "The Vortex: and Environmental History of the Modern World."
0: Everyone, please go check it out, please, because it's uh, like we've been saying throughout this whole podcast. It's
1: something that's very underrated. So, uh, th- um, thanks for doing this commercial stuff here. I'm not very good at self advertising, but oh no, and um, it,
0: it's not even and and it's and it's genuine too. I, ho- I hope it comes across that way because I I truly mean it. I don't, you know, I'm a big proponent of I don't like wasting people's time, mm-hmm. especially. Every interview we have, they're very busy mm-hmm. individuals, and I don't mm-hmm. like wasting your time. So when I mm-hmm. say these things, it's because I truly mean it. So yeah, there you go. Um, all right. So some of the fun questions. So we're closing <laughs> We're closing in on this podcast. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, I went down a YouTube rabbit hole as you know I, I often do, but this time with the several videos that you're featured in uh, that are posted by the the university you, you teach at. Mm-hmm. Um, which I'll put some of the descriptions if you don't mind in the in the link of this pod. Um I I don't know, I find it uh an awesome and innovating way to expressing your projects and just history in general. Um, since I'm kinda of doing a similar thing with this mm-hmm. podcast. Mm-hmm. So so can you um explain
1: how that came to be and your thoughts on it? Well, my 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 YouTube career is really a result of the pandemic that I realized uh, all the corridor conversations, all the, you know, informal conversation was just coming to a halt. Let's find a way to to well do something about this and have these these videos that that I put out on well first matters of the day we have a thematically focused uh, series for this term where you talk about uh, making food history so and I found this is a way to not just put something out there but also to um, summarize things that came from um, lectures that I did seminars discussions um, and weird way to you know not just let things hanging in the air but try to, Provide a summary of the discussion and your reflections and your afterthoughts uh, from seminar, and just make clear, you know, academic events don't end uh, when you have to move to your next class, but they right. trigger these questions. And very often, the outcome of a seminar is I don't really know, and maybe I need to think more about these things. So having, you know, these podca- these these videos are also a way to, you know, flag the active construction sites that we have, and right. it's it's. Rewarding as an yeah. academic to say at times I don't really know I need to think about all of that yeah for
0: sure no I, I I watched several of them last night so it was pretty cool um so since you know these these last two questions I have for you so we've been th- dealing a lot with uh, citrus so uh, what's your favorite orange juice brand now if you don't have one if you're like more of a are you a more straight natural like you get your own oranges and you
1: you know do it yourself or what. I'm still in the sampling stage. Okay. Um, um, I hope this doesn't prompt the citrus growers here to send me tons of samples to England. Um, but though if you do, I mean, you here, you know, I'll, I'll drink it. Um, but um, that's that's I mean it's a tricky question because you know being, you know, writing about something and being accomplice to this um, is is you know the, uh, the 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 distance that you usually like to have towards your topic is is just not, not there, and maybe I'll say for the moment that I'm, I'm still, I'm still sampling, and I appreciate the diversity. Um, but yeah, freshly squeezed orange juice has something for it as well. I sent that as a greeting to all the big people in the, in the, you know, big heads in the corporations who. Um, is is big heads a word that yeah. I may use? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, <That's> <laughs> <laughs> sorry, this is native non-native speaker here. I um, <laughs> don't want to offend these people. They they do a job and mm-hmm. um and and do it well. I know freshly squeezed is. Uh, has these extra costs but sometimes it's good to have that too all right so my
0: last uh fun question here you know talking about the sampling of orange juice so now let's let's switch it up a little bit so what did you have
1: for dinner uh yesterday after the, after the talk <laughs> i got a friendly invitation and had tacos so um my food had well had a grain element had tomatoes in it had some cheese in it and salsa that itself was i guess composed by a few different ingredients so my dinner last night connected me to the world of food and its full diversity once more. Awesome.
0: Um, So that is Dr. Frank Jukater, everyone. I want to thank you so much uh, again for taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk to me. I really appreciate it. Uh, you took someone that was completely unaware of a topic, and now I am definitely more appreciative of it. So I, I really, truly want to thank you for having this, uh, sitting down with me and talking about this. I really do appreciate it. My pleasure. And also... I look forward to your new book, so um, and we'll most certainly get it once it comes out. So you you, you could count on me, and who, who knows, maybe you could come back on the pod once I finish reading the book, and we could talk more about about this and other topics that I know as you rightfully should, you know, kept in your back pocket. You know, the big reveals want to keep them in the book, so I get it. Uh, whether you're back here on a book tour or virtually through when you're in England, whatever you want. Uh, but yeah, thank you again. I really appreciate it. Thanks for well, fun to do this. That was the pod. I hope you all enjoyed it. I definitely enjoyed talking to him about, again, the subject area that I was unfamiliar with. And being on the other side of this, I I definitely gained some knowledge, and I'm appreciative of it. And I hope you all are feeling the same type of way. Uh, I hope all my Floridians are safe during this tropical storm slash category one, depending on when you're listening to this uh, storm. Uh, y- we all know the draw at this point, right? So, um, but hopefully everyone is safe and sound. Please subscribe to this podcast to hear future conversations about history. I have some exciting news that hopefully I will be able to reveal to you all next week um, or for sure in the coming weeks. It's very exciting news. But yeah, I hope you all enjoyed it. And please subscribe to this podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts and also to hear future conversations about history. For Night's History Cast, I'm Sebastian Garcia. Thank you all for listening. I really appreciate it. And be safe out there for my Floridians. Thank you, everybody.